everyone. Welcome to season three of The Culture Journalist, a podcast about culture in the age of platforms. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. And we are so excited to kick things off today with an episode that feels pretty damn fitting for these darkest days of winter. Think neo-Gothic architecture, darkened libraries full of dusty old books, throwing on your smartest blue blazer and rushing across a misty university quad at dawn. Pals, we're talking about dark academia. It's a wildly popular Gen Z-centric fashion aesthetic and online subculture that we've been following and waxing philosophical about since the start of the pandemic. It centers on a love of learning, classic literature, and threads that look straight out of Oxford or Cambridge in 1922. So Emily, why has dark academia been on your mind? So at the end of last year, I reported a piece for Vice about the aesthetics that captured the zeitgeist in 2021, according to the admins of Aesthetics Wiki. For those of you who aren't familiar, Aesthetics Wiki is a compendium of fashion styles and art movements and other kinds of visual self-expression that is probably the most exhaustive archive of its kind on the internet. And one of those trends, among others like fairy grunge, Y2K, liminal space, etc., was dark academia. Dark academia probably had its biggest and buzziest moment at the start of the pandemic when publications like the New York Times and others seemed to chalk up the trend and its somewhat controversial fetishization of the trappings of elite Western education to young people feeling nostalgic for in-person learning. Everyone was cooped up at home. They couldn't go to school. They were missing school. But most young people are back at school now, and dark academia is arguably more popular than ever. Fandom, the site that hosts Aesthetics Wiki, told me that dark academia got the most hits out of any page on Aesthetics Wiki last year, which suggests to me that there's a lot more to the trend that meets the eye, a certain stickiness, if you will. I also recently finished Donna Tartt's novel, The Secret History, which plays an interesting beguiling role in the whole thing. We'll discuss that later on the show. But separately, I also just thought it would be a great topic to dig into with today's guest, who has written some of the smartest criticism I've read when it comes to explaining the why behind these niche fascinations in contemporary fashion and culture. So get ready to take some notes by candlelight with a fountain pen and ink, because we're about to go deep on dark academia with writer, critic, and fashion theory whiz Biz Sherbert. She's the co-host of the podcast NymFed Alumni and the brain behind the popular Instagram account Mark Fisher Quotes, along with writing numerous fascinating articles for publications like ID, various artists, document journal, and others. Along the way, we'll discuss a few other examples of the trad or traditional becoming alt, such as the growing popularity of Catholic imagery and fashion among art school kids, as well as things like Gen Z's strange fascination with hipster culture, the increased generational metabolism for consuming past fashion trends, and the rise of the aesthetic as an organizing principle of contemporary life. Before that happens, though, we wanted to quickly fill you in on a couple things that we're doing differently this season. Since we started this podcast a year and a half ago, we've been thrilled by the number of people who have signed up for our Substack or 
even reached out to say that it adds something meaningful to their life. That said, The Culture Journalist is an independent project that is funded entirely by listeners. And in the spirit of the creator economy issues that we discuss on pretty much every episode of this podcast, we need your support in order to keep putting in all the time and hard work that goes into producing it. Starting this week, we'll be sending out two different versions of each episode that we release. Free episodes for our free subscribers and full episodes for our paid subscribers. If you're already a paid subscriber, thank you. And you don't have to do a thing. Every time a new episode comes out, you'll get access to the full episode. And as an additional token of our appreciation, we'll be sending you a monthly roundup of the best culture recommendations. Think music, TV, film, reading, recipes, all that and more for just five bucks a month. If you're a free subscriber, we still love you. You just won't be getting to hear everything we talk about with our bright and fascinating guests. If you want to sign up for a paid account, though, you can get a 20% discount for a yearly subscription if you sign up in the next two weeks. We'll be rolling out additional perks throughout the season. And now, on to the show. Hey guys, welcome back. We are here with writer and cultural critic Biz Sherbert. Thanks so much for joining us, Biz. Thanks so much for having me on. So, all right, Dark Academia. Let's just start with, can you tell us a little bit about what it is for people who aren't familiar? Like, what are some hallmarks of the fashion? What are some hallmarks of the lifestyle? Sure. So, Dark Academia, most broadly, is an aesthetic that kind of revolves around the look and lifestyle of elite European education, kind of like the Oxford, Cambridge, and then like East Coast schools like Harvard, Yale. The fascination with that lifestyle and aesthetic, mostly revolving around the mid-century and prior. And it really flourishes on TikTok and Tumblr, just on social media in general. In terms of fashion... Really anything that kind of resembles a prep school uniform, it's pretty simple, honestly, like collared shirts, dress pants, pleated pants, fabrics, like houndstooths, plaids, tweeds, blazers, loafers, sweaters and cardigans, and a lot of like dark leather. In terms of lifestyle, once again, it's about romanticizing these elite schools. And with that goes also romanticizing like learning and scholarly pursuits particularly within the humanities and the liberal arts. And there's also just like some kind of basic hallmarks of the dark academia lifestyle, like drinking tea and coffee and being kind of emo and contemplating all the time. Around when did this start to emerge or become a thing? So I think that something similar to dark academia has been popular on Tumblr for like a long, long time, almost since like the early 2010s or prior but i think this specific iteration of it that we're calling dark academia was most heavily popularized on tiktok during the first year of the pandemic so i would say 2020 was probably the year that dark academia had its biggest traction online 
Can you tell us about the type of books or categories of books that have been kind of central to the trend or influenced it? Yeah, so I think it's a bit broad. So there's a big interest in the beat poets and also the romantic writers and poets like Shelley and Byron. There's also a queer subtext that I, I'm i sure we'll get into. And with that, there comes interest in writers like Oscar Wilde and these like dandy figures. And then there's also kind of an obsession with a few more contemporary novels, one of those being The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And Emily, that's how you first got into it, right? I actually, I would say that it was my interest in dark academia that got me into the secret history. But something I've seen some commentators note was that there's like a fetishization of classical literature, for example. And, you know, this idea of like the kind of books that one would read at an Oxbridge but then also these sort of books that are not exactly young adult literature, but sort of like about student life. Dead Poet Society. Yes, Dead Poet Society, that kind of thing. Yeah, those are definitely like foundational texts, I feel, for what dark academics, if we want to call them, are trying to <laughs> emulate and like fantasize about versus like reading the classics is a bit more boring, I guess, even though it is, like you said, an important part of this technically. And so like some might criticize it as, oh, these people are, you know, they're not actually into this. Well, they also criticize the Eurocentricity of it, which we can get into later, but like, oh, they're pretending to be really into this serious stuff, but they're actually just into, you know, that movie or whatever. Yeah. Like, is it actually an academic lifestyle? Who knows? Yeah. Right. It, it's just a really funny, almost sort of like hypocritical thing, at least on the surface, because it's it's devoted to studying probably like the least superficial thing you can think of, but it's been distilled into an aesthetic. Can you tell us a little bit more about the dark academia origin story? How did it start to emerge and what are some of the offshoots to the aesthetic that have also emerged? There's like light academia and chaotic academia, etc., yeah, I think a lot of what we consider now, which is kind of crazy to consider at this because it's only been a couple of years of people being on TikTok, but like it feels like dark academia and things like cottagecore are almost like the OG TikTok aesthetics. And they all came to be on Tumblr first and then eventually migrated to TikTok. And I think they specifically found so much popularity during the first half of the pandemic because they offered this fantasy in terms of dark academia when people were forced to study and do online classes at home we really lost this ambient environment that a lot of people actually I think do enjoy about going to the university or school obviously not everyone goes to somewhere with like neo-gothic fires and stuff but it's definitely more glamorous than studying from your bed or something 24 7 and then as terms of offshoots yeah light academia which i guess is a more i don't want to say girly but it's definitely less gothic and i mean gothic in like the classical sense not not like mall goth can you describe what light academia looks like for people that aren't familiar 
Yeah, I I haven't looked at it in a while, but to my knowledge, it's like all the things I listed earlier in terms of fashion. So kind of like these classic preppy looks, but literally the color palette has changed from this somber, dark, or super warm autumnal color palette to something more light and airy. And then also, this is a very niche thing, but I think they're really into like marble statues. It's really a color palette thing, I think. Mm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode is I did this piece at the end of last year that was looking back on the most popular aesthetics, or according to the people from Aesthetics Wiki, the people who run Aesthetics Wiki. I love that website. I know. And they're all so nice. And it was so fun, like talking with them. Like I did like as told to's with them. And interestingly, Dark Academia was like the most visited page on there last year. So that suggested that there's still some momentum behind it, I guess, or like people are interested in it. I think it's still the most visited page. I actually use Aesthetics Wiki a lot. Yeah. And I think that Dark Academia is still the number one visited page on there, as far as I can remember. It beat out Cottage Core. Yeah, um, that's crazy to me. Yeah. So one of the people I spoke to, their name is T had a nice little summation of the two aesthetics or the contrast between the two. And I'll read it. They said, Dark Academia primarily focuses on education and self-development, but its secondary topics are mystery, darkness, and the unknown. You'll see images of dry red wine, a silver dagger, a black umbrella, and antique books. Light Academia is softer, underlining how calm, happy, and marvelous student life is. Marvelous is like such an excellent word to apply, I feel like. Yeah, and then they they listed an almond latte, freshly picked oranges, book-pressed flowers, a newly bought nib. I'd say it's a slice-of-life plot rather than an intriguing murder mystery, which I thought was really cute. Yeah, that was beautiful. I definitely think it's a bit more Mm -hmm. whimsical than dramatic and um, mysterious, as you said. I actually once almost made a TikTok about light academia, I recall, and I remember talking about how it's more like drinking a latte in like a sunlit cafe while reading poetry versus being like holed up in this castle-like dungeony library (laughs) or something. Totally. And they say light academia has lighter tones with pastels and warm colors, cream and beige to give you a picture. So it's like very similar, but just kind of a different mood and different color scheme slightly, it seems. I have a question for both of you. Biz, you gave us a good background on like where this comes from and, you know, the concept of it like picking up speed because people are romanticizing like academic environments, like in, in a lockdown situation, that sort of thing. But where does, so I understand the academia side of it, but where do we think the dark part of it stems from? Like what, why that aspect as opposed to just calling it academia? I think part of it has to do with it seems like the most romanticized time of year at these elite educational institutions is the fall. I think that comes up a lot in media and also the kind of imagery that proliferates about these schools and environments like on Tumblr, on Pinterest. Also, you go back to school in the fall. So once you're getting into the swing of things, 
you know, in October or something, it's starting to like get darker outside earlier. So that's like a very, you know, literal um, interpretation. But then also, I think because a lot of these really old universities have gothic or neo-gothic architecture which i think we associate with i don't want to say darkness but some sort of mystery and like gravitas in our like contemporary eye yeah i mean think about like harry potter andrea right totally i i just i guess what i'm sort of stuck on is i'm and, and maybe i'm just like like overthinking this or digging too hard but it's like i'm wondering if there's some sociological underpinning that like at this particular time has like drawn this youth culture towards that kind of darkness. I do think part of the darkness aspect is like, I know within dark academia, there's a bit of a interest in secret societies, like some dark parlor room or underground or something. And in terms of the darkness of it all and why it's appealing to young people right now i think it has something to do with like literally like the brightness of zoom school like it's like blaring in your eyes it sucks i think it's like really simple in terms of contrast mm, that's interesting like analog yes yeah and the light yeah and like ink and stuff all of these kind of fundamental signifiers of education that aren't even you know useful anymore because everything is mediated through screens yeah there's something like unmediated about the darkness there's something almost kind of like tactile about it i agree also i think there's a darkness that comes with going to visiting these schools or imagining these schools because they have such a lore and history around them there's always some sort of like weird famous murder that's happened at every like ivy league school as well yeah. It was like in 1802 when like a lot of schools weren't even open yet or a lot of colleges hadn't been founded yet or something. Maybe not 1802. That's kind of late, but you know what I mean. Totally. And yeah, the hauntedness yeah. of history. Yes. Yes. The hauntedness of history is a beautiful phrase. I feel that a lot. This is like a total tangent, but I just moved to Philadelphia and there's a lot of like weirdly dark academic feeling places. Just there's so much history going back to like the beginning of America and I feel that hauntedness and I, I feel immersed in the vibe. Yeah, I like that idea about some sort of ghostly aura being in these places. And a lot of these schools have legends about ghosts and stuff and hauntings. Totally. One question that drew us to dark academia beyond that or maybe connected to it was, is dark academia a mainstream subculture or identity or would you consider it to be like an alt one like is it a resistance to something where would you situate it along that continuum or do you not see that continuum as even holding much water anymore i think on like a really basic level dark academia is anachronistic so usually that indicates some sort of subcultural value like anachronism is a really big part of subculture and resistance to the mainstream but since so much of fashion and culture especially as led by gen z is like hyper nostalgic it seems hard to use that definition here mm -hmm. i would say it is pretty mainstream in the way that i can't see 
you know, someone walking down the street in suburban America and really getting clowned on for dressing like this. I don't think people would like glare at you the way they might if you're wearing some other really hyper alt look. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's obviously very different from like Y2K style that's super, super popular. And also this kind of ambient dominant cultural force that is defined by things like the show Euphoria. It is very different than that. It's like the antithesis of that. Yeah, because, I mean, there's the whole joke about on TikTok about going to Euphoria High and not being able to wear normal clothes and you have to go put on some like really thoughty club outfit. Um, Like a Fashion Nova set or something. Yeah, yeah, Fashion Nova set. But like Dark Academia High would be like, you have to go put on your horn-rimmed glasses and get your messenger bag. So they are very different. So I think it is alternative in that. But also I think that culture and trends are so fragmented right now that it is hard to define anything as squarely alternative. Yeah, one thing that I noticed as well was it seems like Dark Academia sort of ties in with the old money aesthetic or sometimes you'll see those hashtags together. Mm -hmm. Um, Old money is maybe a little bit more like Jackie O in my mind, like luxury. But I feel like the conversation around old money is associated with this rejection, like almost a celebration of East Coast values and rejection of the West Coast aesthetic of Instagram, California beauty. Do you know what I'm talking about? Definitely. I also think in a way it's kind of a rejection of... I don't want to say liberal values, but there's definitely something about young people really wanting to immerse themselves in traditional lifestyles, which is interesting because on my podcast, we actually did an episode about Gen Z's interest in preppy culture and fashion. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see how quickly it went from like a Gen Z battle cry being like, eat the rich to less than half a year later these aesthetic mood board videos on tiktok romanticizing the old money look or old money lifestyle whatever they want to call it yeah now it's like appropriate the rich (laughs) yeah and i think it's also just like a longing to understand your position in life which sounds really nihilistic or something but there is so much precarity now as we all know that understanding your relationship to society is probably like really attractive to these young people. Right. There's almost something like a little daring about the whole notion of it seizing upon tradition in the way that it does. So in your TikTok primer on the trend, it was like in 2020, I think, and it may have been how I first discovered your work. You made a point, I think you had like two videos, but you made a point to underscore the subculture's association with queerness. What role does queerness or queer relationships play in the world that is being imagined and concocted here? And how do you explain that association? So I think that 
there's a particular interest within dark academia in single gender schools particularly boarding schools which obviously there still are a lot of single gender schools but they were more common in the 20th century and i think within these single gender schools like all boys schools all girls schools there's always been some sort of like implication or subtext of queer longing and i've actually i've never been to like just an all-girls school or something but i know that queerness is really heavily visited in like media about these schools and also i think sometimes there is a bit of longing from like young queer people i'm not gonna say they're longing suppression because that's definitely not true but there is like a, a romantic idea about what it was like to only be able to like indicate your interest in someone through like furtive glances across a library and we'll talk about this in a little bit but also in some of these foundational texts like the secret history homosexual relationships also like the study of classical literature and the association with queer relationships within that comes to the fore and also brideshead revisited yeah i like that point about the homosexuality in the classics because i hadn't even thought about that but that is definitely true so you mentioned earlier this kind of a bit of stodginess and, you know, elitism. I kind of get, get into some of the common critiques that you've seen of this trend. You know, Eurocentrism, the promotion of like what some people might consider an unhealthy lifestyle, class issues. Yeah, definitely people criticize it for being Eurocentric and also elitist especially because the mood board images and that's really like the fuel of these aesthetics is like the mood board economy that supports them. Well, I haven't looked at them in a while. I'm sure they have diversified, which is good, but it was mostly just white people wearing their little cardigans and tweed blazers. But another thing that I find interesting is that it really does aestheticize the kind of like grueling, unglamorous life of the contemporary academic. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that, like how hard it is to be like an untenured professor at a university. So it kind of just breezes past the realities of actually being an academic. Yeah. And then sometimes it will at the same time glamorize, like it won't talk about that as much, but it, but it will glamorize like, I don't know, overconsumption of caffeine. Or I think that's like something it says in the aesthetics wiki page, for example. Yeah, like staying up all night in the library and railing like espresso shots. Yeah, (laughs) seriously writing letters or, you know, composing. Yeah, it's a bit manic, I think. (laughs) It reminds me of like people who are running around in the rain or something like desperate to deliver a letter to someone (laughs) what is interesting about it though is that it does kind of even though it has that element and i can see that being you know unhealthy but it is interesting that it's typically sort of glamorizing it not in this like utilitarian context of succeeding in school or as you said the realities of being a professor or something it's detached from that and it's like studying for studying's sake yeah I think that's really cool and probably not something that a lot of young people feel like they can do 
So maybe if embodying this mindset lets them do that, even if it's not all the time, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, it's easy to see how that can become something almost fetishized because increasingly, I just feel like there's so much of a narrowing of like education leads to career, leads to Mm. being able to survive. Obviously, that's always been the case. But I feel like there's all this stuff that's like, get a STEM job and, you know, you're now competing with the algorithm. I don't know. I went to college on the East Coast and I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And that school's like their their whole deal, at least at the time, was learning for learning's sake, which I just loved. It's one of the reasons I wanted to go there. The liberal arts. Yeah, the liberal arts. Exactly. Yeah. Is Wesleyan dark academic? Like, Mm -hmm. does, does it have that type of architecture there? It's not like full like Yale vibes, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's definitely East Coast and imposing. Like I'm thinking of the library right now, which is very, you think of a East Coast college library and that's what it looks like. <laughs> I went to an East Coast liberal arts school as well. And the vibe was definitely, there were no vocational courses here. If you want to be a journalist, they, they would not give you a journalism class. You'd have to just take creative writing English or whatever, any sort of profession you would want to have, you could not take a vocationalized version of that. It's so interesting. I went to fashion school, so it was very vocational. It seems truly like the opposite experience. Like everything was geared towards how can we help you use this skill to get a job, even if it was courses in art history or something. They always had this little twinge of something that maybe you could carry into the quote-unquote professional world. Totally. And I get messages sometimes from people who went to my school or students currently and want to talk, you know, like informational interview type Mm -hmm. thing. And they just seem to feel so much more anxiety than I did when I went to school about getting a job and applying and like, what course should I take now? What internships do I need? I'm not saying there wasn't pressure when I went, but I also just in general get more and more of a sense and see more writing about like the vocationalization of school and how liberal arts is dying. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. This idea that we're seeing this decline of the liberal arts in terms of funding, in terms of even cultural respect, like how people see those degrees in society. I think there was a famous Obama speech that made fun of people with art history degrees I don't think he's making fun of it, but he was like, we need more people to go into the trades and made like a little sly comment about art history degrees. And then all the art historians got mad. That's ironic because Obama actually gave the graduation speech. He was the graduation speaker at my college in 2008. I literally think it was like around then that he made that speech. So he was obviously flustered about something. But yeah, we do live in this STEM economy where 17 year olds, 15 year olds, like really young people are just pressured to pursue a STEM degree so that they can have stability in life. And I think dark academia is really a way for people to tap in to what it may have been like to like study the humanities when people could major in English or the classics and then go on to be doctors or lawyers and live really fruitful lives, which like no one becomes a doctor anymore with an English degree. But that used to be legitimate thing people did as long as you got your prereqs or even just study those things and have a hope of getting an academic job yes exactly there's a lot of sadness around these subjects 
Yeah, so much of the mainstream reporting I've seen around dark academia, especially this New York Times piece that came out a couple of years ago, has seemed to attribute the trend to just this like, oh, students miss school. They're out of classes, they're learning from home, and they miss the learning environment. But now most people have gone back to school. The trend is still seemingly, or at least as as of last year, fairly popular or stronger than ever. And I'm wondering if it's more than that. Because in-person education also probably doesn't even really resemble that ideal anyway anymore. So I feel like it's got to be something bigger than that. Yeah, like there's such a small percentage of people that do go to these universities or schools that fit the ideal environment for this aesthetic. So most people can't ever tap into it. One theory I have is that Gen Z kind of came into their young adulthood during the pandemic. And then they kind of almost repackaged hipster tropes. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of this is just hipster stuff. It's like typewriters, horned rim glasses, yeah. being really introspective and obsessed with coffee and oh, books you probably haven't heard of, you know. I don't know if this is too much of a tangent, but we're seeing no. kind of a larger revisiting of hipster culture with have you guys heard of the indie sleaze revival oh god yeah <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> so we are seeing people in their teens or young millennials revisit hipster culture on a, a grander scale and this bookish side of hipster culture is i think one of the most iconic facets of the hipster machine and then also i think culturally everything became really minimalist in the 2010s, we had Glossier and Everlane and everything was streamlined. And we had, you know, the Apple aesthetic of these yeah. super sleek phones and laptops taking over everything. And dark academia is much more Baroque and allows for a messiness and almost a bespokeness, which was another facet of hipster culture. It almost seems like dark academia is a facet of hipsterdom, but instead of the DIY aspect of that, it's bespoke. I see also in the obsession with elite knowledge, yes. like very embedded in it. I think that when I was in college in the aughts, hipster culture was more about like elite knowledge of independent music, the entire history of music, like pop music, elite knowledge of independent cinema and art and less classical literature per se, but that was how the hipster defined themselves. Like, I know something you don't know. Yeah, I wonder if that's because it's almost a requirement for Gen Z to have a knowledge of alternative music or independent music and independent film now, if that makes sense. It just seems like it's embedded in their tastes. Contrary to that, I wonder if it's because there's almost been an eradication of notions of elitist knowledge for things like music and film you know like what is indie anymore you know what I mean and music is no longer and Emily and I talk about this all the time on this show and and offline too about there's no experience of having to go to the record store or like having a cool older brother who's going to show you music or get you into this band it's been all made contextless definitely I almost wonder if because of the twisted democratization of you know music visual media that sort of thing where everyone has access to everything and an algorithm to guide them through it. People are essentially turning to books now because that 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 hasn't been platformed yet. I guess being really into like canonical classical literature, I mean, it is 
cool, but it, it's something that almost feels out of reach of the fashion cycle or something. It's not like a pop culture trope that can just be endlessly recycled. It feels like something that is harder to mine and very, very analog and more distant. Yeah, I agree. I want to also say that I was thinking about this the other day. That come to think of it, when I was in college in the like mid to late aughts, in the lib- these like East Coast style liberal arts schools, it actually was very hipster to dress preppy. Yeah, like Vampire Weekend. Like Vampire Weekend. I think that maybe Vampire Weekend was satirizing or had already picked up on it. It was like penny loafers and lots of just, I don't know, like very simple button down shirts. Boat shoes. Yeah, boat shoot, looking slightly old money. That was the most elite hipster stance in certain. And like also hanging out at the library was cool. At least I used to hang out at like Hampshire College sometimes. I didn't go to Hampshire College, but that was the vibe that the coolest of the cool dressed in this kind of Oxbridge-y way and were really into studying. Why do you think that style was so esteemed? I try to figure that out on my own, but I'm a very far removed from that but i'm so curious i i don't really understand it myself actually there's something about it that must be a little bit about class signaling Mm -hmm. um where like the kids who went to these schools are typically educated upper middle class or at least educated middle class and it was some you know it would be also like hip to drive a used mercedes or like a used sob so almost signaling a knowledge of wealth, but the kind of bohemian version of it. Oh, yeah. I learned this word recently that I think was in use this time, which is like trustafarian, being a bohemian with a trust fund, which I thought was really, really good. But also, wasn't there like an 80s revival all across culture at that time? So maybe they were looking into that kind of hedonistic Wolf of Wall Street, decadent 80s preppy look that's so fun to play with maybe well yeah yeah well i mean everyone was wearing vintage clothing at the time so that would have been what is available in vintage stores it's funny that you bring that up because i did a research paper in college specifically about the trend of vintage clothing and particularly ironic clothing that was really popular at the time we didn't have as much of a preppy thing kids were a little more aesthetically left But that's when PBR became really cool. That's when Vice became really cool, right? And people wearing shirts from the 70s, stuff they thrifted, like thrifting was so chic and Mm -hmm. everyone loved like urban outfitters and their kind of vintage aesthetic at the time. And the conclusion I ended up coming to was that it was actually a form of class signaling and semiotics in that the majority of kids that went to my college were well off and You can only afford to signal that kind of cool if you're not actually poor, if you're not literally having to shop at a thrift store because you can't afford it anywhere else, you know? Yeah, it's this thing that's called conspicuous consumption. It's almost related to norm core and that like if you're really cool and you're really confident in your social standing and your social class, you can return to these ways of presenting yourself that are like normy or they're associated with your parents or something yeah exactly like being from connecticut which maybe isn't the coolest thing to indicate as a hipster but if you're really confident about it did you guys read that book that came out a long time ago it was like n plus one what was the hipster 
I have seen excerpts from it online. Talks a lot about this stuff. It also talks about that specific trend that you're citing, Andrea, in terms of LARPing ethnic whiteness or something. Like white people LARPing working. White trash, yeah. White trash or like white ethnicities such as... Like Russian Russian, Italian. Yeah. Eastern European. Yeah. I think that was part of informing it. It is a way of signaling class status as not that or something. Yeah, it's like a rejection of the mainstream, but only for those who can afford to do so. If that makes sense. The whole notion of just ironic clothing, right, is it's ironic. Essentially, it's making fun of people that would quote unquote actually wear that stuff, you know? Yeah, and you also don't have to worry about dressing for access to things. You don't have to worry about looking nice in a very traditional sense which is why people were so off put by like the idea of a dirty hipster being able to move through the world so easily but being like grimy and having these clothes that were just disgusting and beat up yeah exactly it's like the same logic behind paying for pre-ripped jeans (laughs) yeah our golden goose sneakers which are a big part of the i wouldn't say like old money aesthetic but the girls who kind of are interested in emulating that like those a lot To bring this back to now, I'm wondering to what extent the dark academia aesthetic can also be seen as a response to the pressures to constantly perform on social media. Obviously, it's all about posting, but it's sort of like performing your analogness. I was wondering what you thought about that. I think it's the same as any social media driven aesthetic, which dark academia very much is. It cannot exists without being seen or documented or perpetuated online and I think that's like the difference between someone who sees themselves as a dark academic or wants to be seen as a dark academic and someone who just goes to Oxford and studies philosophy and dresses in like corduroy pants or something mm-hmm. like the awareness of it and the willingness to document it for consumption on social media I think is like entirely essential for its existence as a an aesthetic even if it's like part of the performance is I stayed up late writing on my typewriter or I'm living this kind of analog existence that is not for that consumption but then you have to show that it is happening in some way or or you don't exist yeah I think a lot of the attraction of this is like feeling like you uh, can make content that is like the right balance between niche and digestible. So having these niche signifiers in your content, like typewriters or like saying that you stayed up all night typing on a typewriter, which is really weird to do makes like really compelling content, but it also has to be filmed. You have to be able to somehow communicate it through content otherwise you don't get the maximum value out of it as a young person who is using social media a lot of identity is formed through social media for like gen z so right it feels like you're almost making the most of 
building this fantasy world for yourself in real life that has these analog components if you're able to succeed with it on social media as well. It, it's so funny to me because it feels like the ultimate performance of Dark Academia would be to not be on social media, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's it's bound to it. Yeah, because I feel like allegedly the core of Dark Academia is the cultivation of the mind and the spirit. And I think by all accounts, social media corrodes the mind and the spirit. So that's it for the free version of this episode. And there's so much more great stuff ahead that we'd love to share with you. Like Dark Academia's surprising ties to Donna Tartt's novel, The Secret History. We also talk with Biz about some of her work exploring other examples of the trad becoming alt, the use of Catholic imagery in fashion and its connection to cancel culture, the weird nostalgia for hipster culture we see in movements like indie sleaze, and Biz's own predictions about the aesthetics that'll capture the zeitgeist in 2022. Get in on it and access to other exclusive goodies by subscribing for just $5 a month at theculturejournalist.substack.com. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. For more on this episode and to check out more of Biz's work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a share or leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts to help support independent journalism.